Welcome to the one within all to another episode of Interverse. Man, I'm excited for this one. It is a long time coming. Um, we have the return of my good buddy, Dylan Sicoccio, author of the Spirit World book series. Also, since we last had him on, he's turned out uh, two new books. One of them is the fourth in the Spirit World series called A God's Acre for Winds of the Soul. And his amazingly, <laughs> I'd say controversial, but super helpful book, uh, Get Mad or Get Realistic, about how to actually be a man in this world of effeminized uh, communism. <laughs> so we have so many things. Dylan's provided an excellent outline of subjects he's prepared to speak about. Definitely appreciate that. We don't always get that uh, pleasure with a guest to be super organized and on point. Much, much, much to say, but make sure that you are following Dylan on Instagram if you want his updates. Right now it's A underscore Godsacre. Also, for sure, you should have read the Spirit World book series by now or checked out the audiobook versions. You can find them on Amazon and Audible. And in every episode of this podcast, you will see a link in the show notes to July's End with Black Swans, the third book in the Spirit World series that I narrated and produced as an audiobook. And there's so much there. It is a huge gift to all of us who are interested in syncretizing all of the mythological symbolical ciphers and things of that nature that the probably one of the main reasons you're listening to the show is because we get into that type of gravy. Dylan's work has completely changed my life, totally upgraded me in terms of my ability to comprehend this stuff. I know I'm going on a little bit, but I got to say before spirit world for me, I was kind of lost in the mysticism of it all. Like, are these really real concepts? Are there really gods out there? And like, totally, totally not sorting it all out. And once you can put it into this syncretic perspective and see that it's really one system and it's reflect and its value is in how it reflects nature and its worthlessness is in how it gets you lost in mysticism, no different than the, because I said, so scientism cults of, you know, this is the left brain versus the right brain, but both sides of this mafia war are equal, equally complicit in the way that they play the game, which is through false authority. And nature's the real authority. We're going to get into that today, exploring language, exploring Dylan's newest research that is probably going to be going into his next book that he's already far underway in. So with that being said, let's get into it. Dylan, welcome back to Interverse. How are you doing, man? Man, it's exciting to be back with you and for the audience. Um, you know, Chance plays a huge, huge role in this being possible. And you changed my life as much as I've changed yours. And I think there's something about us that we have this like synergy. Um, we're very complementary to each other. We're kind of like opposites, but the same, like, like in terms of the way you are, our ability to see things um, and see the same thing without uh, talking to each other. It's just dependent on our access to information, you know, and so um, it's been a real honor to know you. And uh, I'm very grateful for God that you were brought into my life uh, for the audience. Uh, the reason I was on Crow is because Chance recommended my books. I think you had Crow on as a guest or something or however that happened. And so that brought Jason and Rose into my life and they're friends now. And so I have a very small group of people who have the best credibility in this space in my corner, at least in terms of my work. And, uh, you know, that, that little group of people has, you know, it got the series 
popping in sales. So now that it gave me an ability to make a, to at least get by without having to work. So what I've done is I've just, I've traded in inspiration and motivation and I've just become disciplined and uh, the tenacity to show up every day and work hard. I've, I'm going to publish a third book this year. And that's how productive I've been able to be by just getting realistic and, um, you know, not waiting for the moment to hit just every day, just whether I want to go or not, I got to go to the gym and build my body. I've got to read and educate myself and grow my mind. And then I've got to put it out so I can help others expedite the process. And that's really what my work has been all about. It's to save the viewers thousands of hours of their life, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. And um, it's also to give you free time because once you are familiar with the knowledge and spirit world, you'll be able to see that it's not opinion-based. It's just facts. And 99.9% of this space makes so many errors and is putting out erroneous information that if you're watching them, you're going to be led astray. So spirit world allows you to get all this information in a quick digestible format and then start incorporating it into your own work like Pat Life does, uh, like Rob does, and, and especially like you. And now it's like amazing to see you seeing all these things in the process quickening and hitting me up with all this mythology or history that you're looking at. And you're like, see, look, it's, it's, it's the symbolism in this historical account as well. And, uh, you know, it really is exciting because that's the only way we're going to be able to figure out what's going on in this world is to get rid of and be able to expose all the absurdities and falsities. So thanks for having me back. And uh, for your audience members who have supported Spirit World and Get Mad or Get Realistic and uh, my fantasy series, The Tale of Honora, thank you so much. And I'm very grateful to be here. Yeah, man, I love how <laughs> also coinciding with your hugely prolific writing from the last year is getting way stronger physically. I mean, you say that directly in the first chapter of the newest spirit world book, you must get strong physically and mentally. Both aspects require doing the work, but they go hand in hand. You know, like time is a slippery thing. It is not exactly like we have this linear concept of it, but I find that when I spend the time doing what's best for my health and like taking the time to do that, I feel like I have more time throughout the rest of the day, even though I maybe spent two hours on my body or three hours on my body that day is a kind of an interesting paradox like that. So happy to see that you're definitely getting stronger on all levels and that in the work, you know, I really enjoyed the newest book, a God's acre for winds of the soul more than the whole rest of the series, partly because they build on each other. And it's like, yeah. when, you know, once something is really rolling, it just gets bigger and bigger, but yeah, I think that what is most valuable about it is once you see the pattern, the potter, <laughs> the pata of it all, <laughs> you know, I never it, even connected that. The fact that you just connected that is hilarious. Pattern. It is. It's what it is, man. Yeah. It's there's one pattern. There's one pata of it. And then once you have a grasp on it, you're like, okay, I'm no longer lost in the sauce of the mystic side of things. And I really appreciate uh, when I figured this out from Wilhelm Reich, his work, Ether, God and Devil, when he pointed out that like the mysticism is exactly the same as the mechanism, whenever it's just way out there in the whole, because I told you so, the the yugas are this much time and like we know the age of a Brahmin day and like it's millions of years and trust us, we just know. 
You know, like what's up with that? What's one of the, my favorite parts of the new book? And it's not, I don't think in your notes, but maybe worth touching on yeah, for is sure. the idea of the larger cycles of time as the priest class has offered it to us in various forms. Could you like maybe talk about that and your opinion on these larger time cycles? Yes. Um, so I'm not, so if people want to go in depth with this, look at my crow episode 383. And so I'm really prepared today. What I'm trying to do moving forward is make sure that each podcast I do is unique. So I have like this outline and I give you the choices and so that I never do these subjects with other people so that there's a draw to each one of these podcasts. But that being said, talking about it generally, what you find when you go back in time is that these people have always been wrong. And the reason for that is because these cycles happen so gradually that you can only really determine them over time through calculation and based on the records you have available. So if those records are anything less than perfect, you're going to have issues. Now, of these people, of these priest class, uh, the vates, the seer, that, that's where uh, um, Vatican comes from. And in the ancient Irish or, or like the Druidic system, which is all the same system, by the way, and uh, book five is really going to go into that. But you'd have the Ubages. Uh, and so these astronomers, whether it's bishops, you know, that's we in uh in the first episode of Crow that I did, I did the etymology of bishop and show how it means seer, right? Episcopal, all that stuff. It's the astronomers. And these people were responsible for foretelling future events and keeping track of the cycles so that you knew when to grow crops, uh, you knew when to do everything. And that's how civilization thrived. And the reason that's so important is because you need starchy grains. There's not one empire that ever thrived that didn't have the means of growing starchy grains so you can feed uh, the soldiers and all the people that are going forth and expanding. Um, so when you look at this stuff in history, they've never been right. But the closest group of that were the Chaldeans that were right, that were, that were like the closest to everything being precise. And um, one of the things that Sosagenes did, he's a Chaldean astronomer from Egypt, is when they called upon him, Julius Caesar, or whoever was around at that time, I'm not sure if Julius Caesar is a historical person, but at least through his work and his books, there was somebody that, you know, played that role or whatever it is they were able to correct the calendar and that calendar stayed on its reckoning for nearly 1500 years, despite the, uh, the procession, but it still eventually got off its reckoning by like 11 days or something. And that's when the Gregorian calendar needed to be adjusted. Um, because if they had the year under Caesar at 365.24 days, and then with the Gregorian, they had to make it 365.2425. And so we have that calendar today. And as a result, we can, that calendar mirrors the cycle of the sun. 
And so even though it might not be the exact uh, calendar for like, whether it's like the lunar calendar or the exact measure of everything, it's good enough so that the farmers and the common people can rely on without having to know astronomy. So we know based on the date, we can look at any calendar and know when spring is, even if it's not like exactly the right time. And so what you see is these cultures in India, everybody's got this like system of trying to appear older than they actually are. So what they do is they create these crazy long cycles. You see it, the Bible's written, uh, riddled with it. Every, every priest class from the old world, they try to make it, these cycles seem so big to pass themselves off as being like an ancient culture. And it's kind of like what you were saying earlier, like it's to give them authority that they don't even actually have. Because if you really look into uh, Indian history, they don't have shit. And if you look at how often they have to um, rewrite their religious scriptures and their, all that stuff, whether it's the Vedas, you name it, they have to do it every 10 years because the climate rotted the paper. And that's what the British found when they explored it anyway. So now you're trusting the priest class who are known liars to constantly be writing everything every 10 years and reimagining it or translating it the way they want to interpret it rather than what it actually said. And uh, as a result, it's been really difficult. It, it gets to a point where history is so defiled by mythology that you can't separate the two. And so what comes after that and what I try to focus on, including focusing on that, is exploring language because language still contains its secrets. And the more words in a language, the more history it can unearth if you can figure out the origin of those words and what they originally meant. And so hopefully that answered your question. If it didn't get me back on track and I'll try to enucleate it a little bit better. No, no, no. I think that we kind of touched on the point. I just wanted to make sure that people had that perspective because we hear all these things about like the Kali Yuga and the, the different huge cycles and ages. And I, I know what isn't isn't accurate about that. I, I don't doubt that Earth or this realm goes through cycles that are larger in some capacity because we see the cyclical nature of what we call time every year, every Anu, right? But what you pointed out is the most important and crucial thing. And as it's quoted in chapter one uh, by Grotius of the Netherlands <laughs> in chapter one of A God's Acre, he says, ecclesiastical history consists of nothing but the wickedness of the governing clergy. Uh, like that nails it. That nails it. And uh, it's just no different than the scientism, right? Like they want to tell you they know the exact age of the earth and the exact age of the universe. And like, okay, this is very similar to all these other theoretical physics and things where it's mostly based on math and equations and algebra and abstraction. And in particular with the, uh, the clergy, what they do, what I picked up from your book is that they have certain sacred numbers and ratios that they really believe have this mystical significance or connect to the um, allegorical characters that they want to create as historical figures or that they believe in as historical figures, whatever the case may be. And then they attempt to adhere 
cycles of time to these particular numbers when it really doesn't work that way. Like trying to adhere a year to 360 days to make it a perfect circle. And when it doesn't, so they say, oh, well, that means we must know for sure that some cataclysm happened that knocked the earth off of its tilt in their whole ball thing. Hold on. What do you think about that chance? What's your opinion? Like, was the year originally 360 days and something did disrupt it or the cycle of the sun might have changed? Or do you think they just measured it wrong? Uh, You see, my answer is I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. But in terms of like, I, I think that it's a big assumption to think that you do know. However, I do, at least in terms of the psychology of human beings and their current condition, think that there is strong evidence for some huge cataclysmic trauma or cycles of cataclysmic cataclysmic trauma. What that is, where that came from, don't know, or how it worked, don't know. Uh, If I had to guess, I really think, to me, like my favorite trail is the idea of some sort of electrolysis type event in the larger battery superstructure of this realm that Mm -hmm. caused the growing of the earth, like actual additional land being added. There's a lot of mythology that supports that idea or allegorically encodes it. And to me, because I look at life as seemingly evident that things are self-similar across scale, it does make sense that there would be some sort of like growing happening with the actual physical earth that we have here especially when you consider like geology and the science of geology and how backwards that is it's exactly the same thing we're talking about they make these claims about carbon dating (laughs) they make these claims about like how long erosion how fast erosion happens and like like i've been i checked out this book called the geologist descent from deep time and it's you know an academic geologist who's talking about the rates of erosion that happened to the soil on the coast, just in like the United States, for example, and how at the current rate of erosion, there would be, you know, like the landmass we're on right now will be gone so much faster than what they say in terms of how long cycles go. So to me, it's like if erosion, especially coastal erosion happens so quickly and we have all these underwater (laughs) civilizations that we find under the oceans, like to me, it makes perfect sense that a particular type of like what they call the mud flood would be some sort of additional earth being added to the system. You know, especially when we look at the um, we brought up the Chaldeans, but the there's the link between that word with like calendar and caldera. And me and some of my friends that get into this syncretism work regularly have made a lot of connections to the volcano aspect of whatever like the chief artificer maker deity is of these systems and how you can connect that to the idea of Vulcan. And so something maybe is measurable in the cycles of the sun, perhaps that will give um, people that have a longer view of history an idea of when perhaps another deluge event would happen. But to me, like the deluge might be mud as much as it is water. And when we we look at how electrolysis works and how there's this sludge material that seems to kind of come out of nowhere yeah. uh, with that process. Maybe the Ragnarok is just the recharging of the battery that also, you know, resets the land so that there's enough land for life to grow on. I don't know exactly, but there's maybe I mean, there's definitely all kinds of weird it. things. Like I know people who have aquatic fossils on their farms in Texas, you know, and there's also oil there and 
obviously there's a grift going on with oil and I'm not the person to have on to talk about that, but everybody who's looked into it can kind of see that. But yeah, it's, it's, it's weird because you'll, you'll see people talking about the mud floods and stuff, but then you'll still see all these places that are exposed that have been carded and dated. And they're like, well, this is like from 10,000 years ago. And it's like, well, I thought the mud flood would have taken that out, you know? So it's like, you see stuff in specific events or in specific locations. And I think it is, it's related to specific events. I grew up on the ocean um, and the shoreline is exactly where it was uh, 30 years ago. Um, when I used to leave my boat out on the beach and, you know, you didn't have to have like permits and any of that shit. So it's, it's, it's hard to say, but there definitely does seem to be instances where things have changed a little bit. And, um, one of the things I was looking at in my exploration of book five is just the Strait of Gibraltar, because that would have been a landmass connecting North Africa to Europe. And I wonder, it's such a narrow strait. If at some point, maybe that was a land bridge and the Atlantic Ocean broke through that. And so that's what made the Mediterranean. And that would like account for things like, you know, when they say how like Atlantis, you know, there's, first of all, there's no evidence of Atlantis. So anybody who's claiming that, throw that out the window. There's not anything serious that you can stand on with that. But if we're going to speculate, something like that would make sense, right? Like if there were, there was land and what is the basin of the Mediterranean ocean now, and it got wiped out as a result of that Strait of Gibraltar breaking through in the Atlantic flooding, then you, you know, you could make the case for some of these things, but uh, it's just interesting. The reason I asked, because in my new book, and this is nothing new, everybody in this space kind of knows that the Americas have been visited and the, the ancient world knew about the Americas but I'm going to use my skill set to show how the Mexicans uh, speaking of that calendar, this is what started that is they had the same calendar as the Egyptians. So it was a 300 day year, but they inserted the five intercalary days. Those are the dead days. So you mean a 360 day year? Yes. Yeah, sorry, sorry, sorry. 360 day year, yeah. but they inserted the five dead days. So it's really interesting how cultures who have no connection to each other could share the exact same astronomical mistakes. Um, you know, and the fact that they have like Egyptian and Greek style architecture when they didn't even have use of, they didn't know how to smelt iron. They didn't have the ability to make tools like that. They didn't have use of letters, but they somehow spoke what the Jesuits called a corrupt Hebrew. And they dismissed that by saying, well, it's because they're of the devil. That's why they speak a dialect of Hebrew. And so book five is going to further destroy mosaic history. And I think that's, um, that's the best thing about spirit world is it's a chainsaw that destroys it all. I don't play favorites. I serve the truth and that's it. And once you can debunk mosaic history, there goes Christianity. The next domino to fall is Islam. And the further you go back, I take Hinduism down, Buddhism. I expose all of it. The Celtic stuff, you know, uh, being somebody who, uh, what, what I'm exploring now with book five is showing the language in Ireland, how they use the same 17 letters that the Phoenicians gave to the Greeks. No more. Um, and how all these languages in the UK are 
sympathetic to what people would call Hebrew, like the Welsh is uh, comparable to Hebrew. And that's one of the first subjects we uh, decided that you wanted to go into first was language. So if you want, without further ado, we can you know, yeah, throw let's some more ideas notes, back and forth, but we can get into. So what we're going to do with language, this is all book five material. So if you're in the audience and this interests you, catch up. But um, what is important to note is there's this language that exists or existed called Sanskrit. And I think a lot of people are familiar with it. And it shares over, I don't know, over 30, probably more words with Latin, with Irish. Um, and so you can see that these are all the mathematically, these are all the exact same language, just dressed up differently and going into language. I was actually just thinking about this today or the, uh, yesterday, but I was thinking about this morning too, is that if you think about it, all language is the same. It's just different people trying to convey their ideas of what they need and their emotions or whatever else. And babies speak their own language. Everybody speaks their own language. But what is unique is that certain groups of people develop systems. And so the things we speak are dialects of the same thing. But the things that get written down and created, those are going to be the actual languages. And so there's a very unique thing that nothing else is like, and that is Sanskrit. And it's the only language where the words adhere to the grammatical rules, they've still been preserved as a priestly language. Um, there isn't a written or spoken language formed by rule except for Sanskrit. Uh, you could make the case of the Agam, the Irish Agam, but it's not really, I mean, that, that, that one's a little bit different. And uh, I don't want to get into it right now because it's another conversation, but this might be an indication that Sanskrit itself is modern in the sense that it, I think it has like 52 letters. Some of them are, they're double letters, right? But it, um, because it has all the same words or not all of them, but because it has so many similar words with Latin and the ancient Irish and all that stuff, the Highland language, um, it indicates that they came from the same source. So even though Sanskrit, and, and the reason this is important is because the Etruscan language, Etruria, this would be today in Italy, it would be Tuscany, it would be uh, Lazio, Umbria, when that gave way to the Roman Empire. So what, you, what they find is that the Etruscan language, which is like the oldest uh, that we have, at least in the Mediterranean region of languages, it's the Phoenician, right? It's, a, it's like a 13-letter alphabet. They that is like a, a devolving or a, an improvement. I don't know whether it's an improvement or devolving. It's hard to say, but it's coming from Sanskrit. And you so lat some of both. Yeah. It, I guess it depends on how you look at it. And um, I, I, I think in book four, I said it was a corruption. And so then Latin becomes a corruption of um, intrusion, but in a way, when people take language and do their own thing with it, even though they don't play by rules and they fuck it up with carelessness, certain things kind of improve. So I, I don't know whether to call it, let's just call it a corruption from now. But you got Sanskrit, you got Latin, I'm sorry, you got Etrurian, uh, then Latin. And 
the reason it's hard to pinpoint this new set, the, the newer version of Sanskrit is because of all these old languages that come from it. But how could those old languages with so few letters come from something with so many letters? So it looks like the one, the Sanskrit that was like known towards the more modern era, that was like the improvement of whatever they all came from. But we're just going to call it Sanskrit for the sake of conceptualization and for the audience's benefit. That just means holy writ. Yeah. And they even sometimes pronounce it. In India, Sanskrit. Sanskrit, yeah, sun, the language of the, I was almost gonna name book five the language of the sun, but I'm not gonna because I like uh, holy sailors, if that's yeah, well, a working title. Because yeah, it is because that's the that's the Aturians and uh the But Phoenicians. it also reflects the whole Argo, you know, the sun being often allegorized as a deity that's riding some kind of boat in the sky. Yeah. Too. It's freaking wild, but it really is. It's the language of the priests of the solar cult. And so um, every other language outside of that is basically a language of circumstances. Uh, and, and it gets improved by grammarians, and, um, but it also gets changed by the vernacular of the masses, um, even though the language starts off as like a priestly creation. But this gentleman named Babington but uh, he claimed that the Sanskrit in South India was written in characters that were derived from Tamil and Tamilese is not derived from Sanskrit. It's uh, it's a language, whatever they came from, it's a language that uh, no longer exists. And, um, but from that Tamil comes all these other ones we're more familiar with. And so the status quo will admit that Hebrew and Arabic of the Quran it be, they became dead and learned languages, right? They weren't understood by a culture or masses until they were made common. And once common, a secret language will diverge from the originals until they're barely recognizable. And so that's what you see a lot of like in, in, in Britain as well. Um, but the vernacular spoken by the so-called Jews was Syriac. It wasn't Hebrew. And so Hebrew is a learned but not spoken language, just like we today would learn Latin, but we can't go anywhere and find people that speak Latin. And so my audience understands that Hebrew and Arabic were just forms of the priestly language made common and that no culture or people ever spoke either of them until they were made common in the middle middle ages, by the way, for anyone who doesn't know the history of Hebrew, go look up the vowel point system. Um, but that's why they had to create that is because they had to teach people how to speak it. And so so I want this, to point out oh, too, ahead. like, so part of why maybe, in my opinion, these, you know, dead languages that are then taught, that are learned languages. First of all, that reminds that entire concept reminds me of like legalese and how there's a specific corporation, corporate corpse oration, dead language, dead speak <laughs> that is kept like in a sort of copyrighted form where it doesn't change, it doesn't evolve. Just the way that like Latin is not a language that is ever changing. You know, it's not really spoken anymore. Uh, to me, whenever you see like that, the languages that the people eventually do get are sort of reduced versions or just a segment, not the full alphabet, things like that. It reminds me of how the slave owners in the United States during the era of slavery had frequently like would strategize with one another about how to best manage their slaves by their their primary way of doing it was to 
make sure that they only had the words and concepts in their language as slaves that they needed to do their job and to be unable to imagine a life different or better from the life they had. So to me, that's probably why like the origin is big, but then how it gets deployed in different regions is just segmented. I think you see them doing that to us today with English because English has a lot of words. And I think that's what makes English so special is because it's an amalgamation, even though it's the same system, it's infused with, everybody else's language. Um, and you know, the English does share a lot of Greek, but going back to what we, what I was saying about the reason that's important is, you know, I've put this out there in my books before, and I, I do this very carefully. I'm very calculated because I like to leave people enough rope. So if they try to go against what I'm saying and then like slander me online or whatever, they're going to destroy their reputation. But I'll say things like Hebrew is Masonic language. People much smarter than me, much more experienced than me, have told you that if you know what you're looking for. And the Masons, and I'm not just talking about these, uh, you know, frat club that you see in the last couple hundred years. I'm talking about all Masonry. They are all priests because when you see all these historical edifices, the reason the stonework lasts is because they were usually temples. And sometimes palaces or like ramparts, city gate, city walls, whatever. But in order to build these things, they did it with systems. And in order to know those systems that they did it, it mirrors astronomy and the cycles of heaven. And so every Mason was a priest, but not every priest was a Mason. Um, but going back to English. So that's what I mean when I say these, these languages are Masonic. They are of the priest classes. They are a system of communication in secret. And this goes back to, you know, why the Agam was created. It means a secret letter system. It's from India. Akam, secret. So going back to English and like how it's got all these Greeks. Well, even Josephus says, or how it has all these Greek words, whatever. Even Josephus says, there is not any writing which the Greeks agree to, to be genuine among them, older than Homer's poems. But here's something else that is is interesting about Homer. Um, Plato lived in the fourth century BC, and this is going this is going to show how grammar uh, evolved. So he's claimed to be the first one that considered grammar, and this is just status quo. So don't shoot the messenger, please. Uh, I'm not making claims. I'm just telling you what the status quo is. Because I don't even know if these people are historical, to be honest with you. Well, let's just say about Homer that he's a really quick point. In the Greek, they often, you know, the eta, the H doesn't have the aspirate sound. It's just kind of like a silence. So Homer, Om. (laughs) And if that doesn't hit, then just go like even on Wikipedia, you can find information about the Greco-Buddhist empire. And how the, there's this bridge bet- culturally between the ancient Hellenic world and the, the Buddhist and the, the Hindu and the Indian regions. And then like, okay, we have the LR phonetic switch between languages. So Homer is also like saying Om L and we know about L. Yep. And uh, Ir is going to be related to cycles. So it's the cycle of Om. Um, there's no getting around it. This is all constructed, but... There's, it's part of an Indian tradition. So a lot of these people, they take uh, epithets or uh, like uh, pseudonyms that are based on the sun gods or there's some sort of encoding like that. So it's like you, 
you have to decide what you're looking at. Is it historical or is it allegory? I have kind of like a, um, a rule of like three that we're going to get into in this about whether I determine something like there's only so many coincidences one person can have in relation to astrotheology before it's mathematically impossible that their entire life isn't a, a construct, a construct. It confuses so, the issue too. When you look at modern characters, like, yep. um, uh, Rasputin, <laughs> that Ras. guy, that Rasputin seems like, or even Vladimir Putin seems like in some instances, these like leaders and, and historical figures, even in recent history have some astro theology encoded in their story. And, you know, anyway, that's kind of a caveat, but that gets Ras, really confusing. Ras, as you see, means wisdom, right? You see this in Raj. I'm going to go into this too, but put, boot, these are all, di- these are dialectical words of Buddha. There's a, like, if you look into Asia, there's like a thousand different ways to say Buddha. So like, Ras, put, and right? That's literally the wisdom of Buddha in that name, whether that's an accident, whether somebody created that, I can't tell you. It's not my, I'm not going to make claims about stuff I can't know, but I can tell you just linguistically looking at it, that's undeniable. And I can demonstrate it in multiple languages. And, and Putin in Russian means like the way or the path. So Ra's Putin, the way of Ra, it's the way of the sun. Yeah. Yep. And, and Buddha is the sun. He's, there's a Buddha Trinity as well. Um, so going back to this, like grammar, how this starts, cause we just got to debunk Homer once and for all, uh, Aristotle was the first who wrote on grammar allegedly, and then reduced it to an art. And then Epicurus was the first who publicly taught grammar among the Grecians. Now, if this is true, and I don't know that it is, but if it is, then Homer's poems must be indebted almost entirely to Aristotle and his companions for the perfection of that language. Well, this is a problem because Homer's work is claimed. If you go look it up, they say, Oh, it's circa the seventh and eighth centuries BC, but they don't know. And if Plato lived in the fourth century, how is, how is some dude using all this shit before the fourth century, especially when Josephus just said that there's not any Greek writing alleged to be genuine older than Homer's poems. But if Homer's poems can't be older than the fourth century BC, what the fuck? So applying green language to Aristotle, you get Ari, which is like river or lion and Tot, which is Thoth, which is Hermes, which is Mercury, which is Jesus is the sun and L Aries Tot L (laughs) it's in everything. And totally like you see that totally in Mexican too. And so Tot, for anybody who's watching, it's just right T-O-T. That's another name for Buddha. It's not a stretch. You will see that. You will see rings with Tot written on it. That's where you have the Tutates, Tuis, Teutonic Knights. This is all Celtic. And the what I can show is it goes back to India, but I don't know the depth of it. I, I'm not ready to make, because what I'm seeing with Italy is so intense. And what I'm seeing with the America is so intense that we might be looking at something with, uh, like, if you look at the Umbrians who were before the Aturians in Italy, um, and for everyone who doesn't know this, Italy 
is Celtic. That's why like even today, like people with I in their last name, they still, they look like more like when your name ends in I in Italian, it's going to be an indicative that you're from Northern Italy. So a lot of those people look Scandinavian. Um, they still speak German in like a lot or like places like Alta DJ. Um, but what I'm looking at with um, Egypt, the place that you call Egypt, but it was never called that. But I'm just saying that for conceptual purposes. There's not one hieroglyphic on the three great pyramids. So what you're seeing is an older civilization, whatever that was, whether it was abandoned or not, abandoned or not, or there was a collapse or not, you see a new civilization built upon it. And we have been taught that the empire that's doing these sacred glyphs are the same as the ones that built the pyramid. And it's observably not the case because you wouldn't build pyramids and not have hieroglyphics anywhere on them. So it's crazy, but one thing to consider, and I said this on uh, my last episode of Crow, which was episode 416. People again, much smarter than I have, have proven that the life of Homer is the life of Virgil. Ennead versus the um, Homeric work. So that's just something to consider because a lot of the times they're just recycling a lot of bullshit. And um, according to Suetonius, the art of grammar was first brought to Rome about uh, 170 years BC and by a gentleman named Crates Malotes. And he was the ambassador from King Attalus for the Roman Senate. Um, another thing that's really interesting about uh, Rome, because we're talking about all these like Ras, wisdom. You know, Buddha means old man, but it's indicative of wisdom. Um, well, you also have the Pali, who are from Tamil. And so they're also known as the Philistines or Philistines. And then that language, the Pushto language, it's also called Estrangelo. Um, it's resembled the Chaldee, according to a gentleman named Sir William Jones and his Asiatic researches. And what he noted is Chaldee is basically an older version of Hebrew. Um, People will really have to dive into book four that we're promoting here, uh, God's Acre for Winds of the Soul, to see why that's significant, why it relates to the doctrine of wisdom, because there's a lot written about it. But you'll find this phonetic, you'll find this Pali in places like Rome, Palatine, Palatine Hill. You'll find it in Palestine, right? The Stone of Pallas. You'll find it in the Goddess of Wisdom, Pallas Athena, uh, Palladium. But you've got to remember that this B and P. Charlemagne also. and his paladins. Exactly. Yep. It's, it, that's what I'm saying. It's everywhere. And um, that P and B was interchanged by the Pelagi, the, the holy sailors. And so that's, there's some amount of evidence that they came from Bali or that part of that system was in Bali, right? And because Bali is also God, and it even says, Thou shalt in the Bible, thou shalt no longer call me Bali. And Baal, Baal, Bol. So in Hebrew, the problem with this word, the reason why this is so fucked up is because these modern corrupt, whatever you want to call them, that call themselves, you know, Jews or whatever, they have fucked up everything. They were absolutely careless with the language. So if you were to spell uh, Baal in Hebrew, like the, the old Chaldee way would just be B-L. Right, Beit Lamed, but the way they do in Hebrew is uh, Beit 
uh, ayin, lamed. And ayin is an O, so it looks like B-O-L. So you have all this confusion of shit, of language, and the Greeks were really bad at this too, careless with the language. Um, and so for people like us, it's easy to see that these, how these little errors and or these little changes happen over time. But for the average person, because it's not exact, they're going to look at it and be like, you're crazy. You're just seeing what you want to see because they don't know how the cultures change them. And when you look at these early people, these Syriac, you know, and from that area of Syria and uh, they become the Phoenicians and they're connected to whatever was in Egypt, whatever that was, I don't know. I'm sort of trying to get to the bottom of, but that, band of people that become adventurers that become Phoenicians that basically set up these maritime empires they interchange the B and the P so Bali is Pali Pelagi is Belagi, Bel, the Lord so you can see whenever you're seeing that P-A-L or P-E-L it's all related to the same thing and it's related to the gate, Pila uh, and why that matters is because the symbol is, you know, Janus guards the gates. He's the, he's the, the god of the doors, the gates of the year. And he comes from Janesh, Ganesh, right? Ganesh, the elephant. So you see this symbolism in this elephant symbolism of the sun in winter was found not far from the tower on the estate of Lord Castles. And so there was also found a ring with the cobra, uh, linga, the yoni, which indicates these superstitions had to have come from India. Um, and, and it did so while that Celtic, Hebrew, Cal- whatever that, that language is, it did so while that was in use because the Irish have all those early letters. And if you look at those letters from Cadmus, that allegedly, you know, the that whole story is like astrotheology, so you can't rely on it. But at least in that astrotheology, they're saying that he gave those letters to the Greeks in 500 BC. So if there's any truth to that, and again, I have to friggin', it's embarrassing because I have to beg the question, to even if there's any truth to that, at the very least, that's how early the Irish got it, because it's the same 17 or 16, but people made the case for uh, 17 as well. And what's interesting is when you go back into uh, the further you go back to try to look at where, where does this shit start? You start seeing that like the, some of these languages, the early languages are numerical. And so they're not spoken languages. And so this is why you see with all these languages, whether it's the Greek, the Irish, the Alcor have the Hebrew, they all correspond to numbers. Well, this is so, you can convey meaning without understanding each other. It's kind of like Morse code or sheet music. Everybody can read it, but we might not be able to communicate, but we can play the same notes that are listed. And so the Romans use literary characters as numerals and in alphabetical order as the Chaldeans did. And that was as late as Julius Caesar's time. Now in the sixth century, I've seen claims of that they dug up a Julian calendar that was uh, in Rome and um, the days of the month were numbered by letters in alphabetical order. So they would, instead of like one, two, three, they would start with a, B, C, D, you know, so like the first day of January, B, A, B, C, and it would go to H or the eighth day. 
and then uh, it would begin again. And so these uh, these interesting things that have been claimed over time, they tell a story. But the problem is, what happened to that calendar? Is it, did it get destroyed? Has it been covered up? So it's cool to see the accounts, but for me, before I can like really run with that, I need to see it in the physical world. You know what I mean? But uh, the oldest written language um, is an early language of calling things by numbers and knowing what they refer to based on context. And that's not to say the earliest spoken language. I'm talking about like actual written things. And so all language is technically the same. Like I said earlier, how I was thinking about whether it's babies or old people, you know, it's just a way of communicating thoughts and needs. And we'll do that regardless if there is some sort of technical system of symbolism to, you know, to write with or communicate with signs. But in terms of ascribing symbols to sounds or names, a thing itself, a number, the combination of these ideas with others to expand meaning or context, the first language in writing was likely through numerals. And even people today, you'll hear all over the world, math or numbers, they're the universal language. And like I said, look no further than sheet music. You can read sheet music from hundreds of years ago and still play it. And you can't communicate with the artist that wrote that. You don't even, if he wrote in his native tongue, most of you wouldn't be able to understand that. But you can understand his sheet music by learning the sheet music. And so in Asian cultures, we see the languages of characters or symbols that look like an improved and evolved system of uh, the primitive numerical language that I'm suggesting. And um, Tamil's characters, their extreme simplicity indicates that the language is of high antiquity. I've got some thoughts about that, but just this is what some of the best people that I could come into contact. They, this is some of the things that they've, written about. And so the Sanskrit of South India was written in characters derived from Tamil. So it looks like Sanskrit came from Tamil, not Tamil coming from Sanskrit or they, whatever was before them. And so some of the opinion that the Tamilese, the Chinese, the Hebrew, the Ethiopian, um, and the American languages like the Mexicans and all that stuff, they evolved from an ancient language of the Chinese on account of it being close to Hebrew. And then the other tongues, they're all considered like they're as well, the, the dialects of that. Um, but none have demonstrated. This is the challenge. No one's demonstrated beyond dispute what occurred between picture writing and letters before they could attempt to account for the formation of an alphabet. But like I said, it looks like it was numerals uh, because numerals would be the most needed for um, ledgers and commerce. And I don't want to fall back on cuneiform or any of this stuff because I've seen people do that, like forge that stuff. It's really easy to forge. So if it's a forgery, it could be bullshit, but I've heard like a lot of these tablets and stuff, they're really just ledgers of like, like trade ledgers and accounting. And, um, I think this is the reason for the Egyptian hieroglyphs getting grabbled because to connect letters directly with pictures. Like the reason that being is because if you look at some of the the work that came with like the Rosetta stone and the people who interpreted them, uh, one of them was Champollion. And if you look 
him up online and you look at like portraits of him, he's doing the hidden hand and his, you know, he's hiding his hand in the breast of his pocket in his portrait. And to me, and one, let's just point out his name. Yeah. Champion, Champion of, of Apollo. Apollo. Yeah. <laughs> it's it, so, but I still think it's worth including his work just because I can't prove it. It's just, there's things that I suspect. And so I don't want to just throw the baby out with the bathwater, but it's hard to say, right? All this is hard. We don't know what era the hieroglyphics were created in because they don't exist in the great pyramids. So it shows you're looking at two different cultures at a minimum. And that's not even saying that there could be even more, right? And not only that, the reason they're covering this up is because it needs to preserve mosaic history. Because like I said, once you destroy mosaic history, all of Jewish history is a fable. And that's why when you look at the earliest Greek writer that mentions Moses, well, that's Cassius Longinus. And what's the problem with that? Uh, It's the second half of the third century. So you mean you got to be relying on accounts from Jews about their own history. And you see the same bullshit that you see with the Indians. Oh, we're this many hundreds of thousands of years. You know what I mean? It's like the same bullshit of trying to pass yourselves off as an older culture than you actually are. Because if everybody found the truth about you, you're a product of the modern age of the priests trying to create a priestly people, the Cohen's. That's what, that's what a priest means, Cohen. And so this is not a new idea, but um, it's still challenging to piece this together because the shit that they would have written on is of a perishable nature, which is why um, the Irish Agam, they're, you know, people who actually carved in stone, that's really significant. The Scandinavians, and even though like you don't really find anything before like the eighth century or the seventh century, it's still good that they carved this shit in stone because it's there. But the stuff that's written on tree bark and all that stuff, all these leaves, the papyrus, all that, it's, it's rotted, you know, but in my searching for all of this, um, I think the answer can be found in the Javanese people and the Island of Java. It's um, Indonesia. It has almost 150 million people now. But if you look at it, the spelling of it, J-A-V-A, well, it literally looks like Yova or Jove. Philologically, it's the same word. And so when you look into the Javanese, well, they're sailors and they're shipbuilders. Or dare I say, bridge builders, because a brig is a bridge and it takes you over water. It's also a wartime vessel. But the reason I'm nodding to the pontifical system is because pontifex means bridge builder. And most bridges make an arc. So the best bridge builder is going to be the pontifex maximus, the pope, who would be the great arc detect. And then the idea that a bridge is also in the middle between one thing and another. And that's the entire M.O., Top to bottom, whether you're talking about the church being your intermediaries, or you're talking about the middlemen in mercantilism that skim the profits off the top between your business relationship with another human being. You know, this middleman thing is very becomes very parasitic when it's no longer really a bridge. It's more like a gatekeeper. You see the same thing with the mob and the freaking unions. 
So if you if you're in the mob and you're a made man, you get access to whatever you want, baby. You're not. See ya. This and also in Hollywood and like it's just the exact same system across the board. Uh, corporate That's overworld, it. criminal underworld, whatever it is. Our entire civilization is based on it. And that's why it was so important for me. It's not like I like breaking people's worldviews and showing them that everything they thought it was the truth is a lie. But if we want to get out of this system and remove its authority, we have to be willing to look at the priest system that it comes from. And that's why I did that because um, that great arc, right? Well, in you know, I've gone over this in one of the other things we did with Pat, but what we were talking about Rashit, Barashit in the beginning, well, it's Rasit and it means wisdom because Ras pertains to the head. Just that's why in the, in the Greek version it says Arke because it's the head. If it was first talking about something being done first in order, they would have said Protos, right? Protogenos, firstborn, right? So the greatest arc would be the royal one, that of the sun. And the pontifices at one point were likely literal bridge builders on account of them being masons, because that's how you have to know all this shit to literally build civilization. And so ras and arche mean top or head. Pons is a bridge, right? But if you look at pontios, that's a name for the sea. And it's poetically describing like an open expanse, like the great wide open or the blue, the big blue, you know, yonder, if you will. It's, it's a poetic way of describing the sea. So the Pontifex Maximus is not just the greatest build, bridge builder, but also the maker of the sea or the god of the sea. And that would be Mars. Or as we would say in the Aturian, right? Well, we're called Rasena. We're the Rasena, Ras. Just like the Rasha Puts, just like the Rashid, just like Rash Ashana means head, Ras, head. God, Aser, Isar, Asir, Nordic, Odin, all of them, Caesar, it's all the same thing, the sun. So keep in mind, going back to the brig or the brigantine, which is a warship, and the bridge, they share that same root. And so the ancient Britons were called brigantes, right? Some people say, well, that's because they're disruptors. Well, yeah, that's what those ships do. Obviously, they're newer than brigantes and way newer than the Roman uh, system. But this is all based on the same symbolism and the ideas encoded in these words. And so going back to Britain, why this is, this is important, what you were just saying, the Roman card- cardinals, that's what cardinal is, comes from cardea, a hinge. So they're literally hinges. And that's what you have at Stonehenge, the hinge of the Lord, Stone, Peter, Pe- or sorry, Pater, Petra, Peter, Janus, Jupiter, or Jupiter, the father, Yova, or Jew, Sir, Tyr, Tyr. Sir means Lord, but it rock. The capital Phoenicia, spelled T-Y-R-E, it means, it's pronounced Sir, and it means rock. And it's symbolic of the Lord. And so this the rock star, the Zoroaster. Exactly. It's all the same. It's the same system. And this significance of the arch or Ras is seen in Rajaputs or the Rajputs. That's what they're called now. The Royal Buddhas. Because Put is another name for Buddha. Like I said, the righteous Al-Rashid. Um, and I've seen another uh, thing in Arabic that Ar-Rashid means God. And head of the year, Rashashana, and the Etruscans called the Rasena. 
And so getting back to Javanese, why this island is important is I came across uh, this gentleman. Um, basically, all of the people that look similar. I, I, so I was, I was trying to figure out if, if the Americans were from Asia, who could they be from? And I'm just looking at old photos, black and whites, you name it. And because the reason I did that is because there's accounts of bearded tribes. Now, the problem with these accounts of bearded tribes is they never say what color eyes they have. So I wonder if it's bullshit or not. That being said, they also have so-called tribes of, they call them Negroes back then because it wasn't a bad word. It wasn't politically correct. It just means black, right? So we can call somebody black, but we can't call them black in another language because that's offensive, whatever the fuck that's about. But these tribes of Negroes were already here. And the Javanese fit the description because if you look at the Java, the people of Java, there's an island. Um, this is what made me look into this. Because they look, they look like a blend of Asian, Indian. They look like all of them. They're like an amalgamation. It's hard to explain unless, until you want to go uh, for your audience. Go look up Javanese or Java and, and Google images and just start looking at old pictures. It's, it's fascinating. But the reason I looked into this is because there's an island that was noted in a fictional Arabic story um, that was said to exist in the Sea of China, and it was called Awahaki. Now, um, uh, an Arabic explorer in 18th, he was lived in like uh, the the 9th and 10th centuries, like the the end of the, yeah, so like, well, let's say the 9th century. I think he died in like 912 9, AD, but he mentioned Awahaki writing that the islands are so rich in gold that the inhabitants make the chains for their dogs and the collars for their monkeys of this metal. And they manufacture tunics woven in gold. And uh, they, uh, excellent ebony wood is found in this island. And gold and ebony are the main export, or they were exported from Oaxaca. Now, he seemed to believe that, even though it was a fictional story. But then literally over like 500 years later, a Portuguese apothecary named Tome Pires wrote of Java, actual Java, real, not writing of a fictional story. He said they had many fine hounds with collars and rings of gold and silver. Now, me speculating, Awahaki is so phonetically similar to Oaxaca and Mexico. So once you remove that al, Oaxaca becomes Oaxaca. And this is really interesting because um, it bridges the affinity of the language between the Indians and the Americans. And there's a lot of people that would say, well, yeah, but that X in Mexico is pronounced like an H. The reason I looked at this is because the second word of Oaxaca is X-A-C-A, an old name for Buddha, Saka, which begets the Saki, which begets the Saxons, the Latin word for stone, Saxum, S-A-X-U-M. Well, I will remind all those people that would say I'm, you know, going a little too far into the speculating that Mexico was named after their leader, Messi, M-E-S-I. Oh, wait, you mean like... Mexico. 
You mean like the Moshe? You mean like Moses? Yeah, yeah. You mean Messiah? Yep, all of it. All of it. The anointed? <laughs> and that's why their religious rights are this. This is what I'm saying. Remember how we were talking pre, um, pre-show about what the deciding factor is. Do we as people just uh, create these things and we're running the same... Uh, I don't know. Yeah, is it's it like this innate archetypal thing that comes through us and that's why there's this syncretic thing or is it one system that it all derives from originally, you know? Well, that the bizarre rights, that's what for me seals the deal that it's an old system. It's the bizarre rights. It's not the um like as I understand people, well, if we're all we're all running a similar biological software, we're going to tend to think similar. We're going to tend to create uh, similar, you know, systems perhaps. But when you start seeing the bizarre religious rites, whether it's the linga worship, right? Like, you know, you see the, the Muslims going into India and destroying everything, but leaving the simple, in, the leaving the simple images of Buddha and leaving the, the linga, the phallus, that symbolism intact. You see that phallic symbolism in every major city that's controlled by the solar cult. Um, uh, what I was going to say is, uh, there's mathematical certainty. So going back to what I was saying about how, like the language in Ireland, Rome, Sanskrit, and English, when you see it all being the same, there gets to a point where it's a math, a mathematical impossibility after I think eight words. All right, people. So we had a little bit of a technological glitch, but here we are (laughs) about an hour later, but still determined to keep this thing going. Uh, We're near, we've kind of gone over the first hour time window. So you're welcome for that, everybody. But Dylan's going to continue where we left off talking about the mathematical improbability of languages sharing words. And we'll finish some thoughts, but then expand further in the direction we're on here when we hit the uh, second hour. Perfect. And uh, to the audience, I'm going to be looking down just because I, I took out my mic because I think that was the, the software was slowing my computer down. That's why it crashed. So uh, it's not personal that I'm not looking at you. But the point that I was making. And all the stuff we were talking about, going back to these Javans, the Javanese, is that they were a bridge between cultures that used symbols and numerals as letters in the alphabet. So even if that island I was telling you about, Awahaki, that idea, if that's nonsense, the suspicion of the Javanese being connected to the Americans is still in play. Because you have to decide, how did the American Indians get here? Did they get here by the land bridge, as the status quo told us? or Was there an advanced maritime empire in Asia that was able to get them here? Now, I have a feeling uh, that the America, the Americans were called Indians because the people of the previous ancient maritime empires, whether it's the Carthaginians, anybody in Europe, we don't know what Egypt was at this point. So it could have been them. So whoever they were and however many, you know, whether it's the ancient Irish, right, the Phoenicians, I think they knew that the Indians or the Americans 
were actually from India, which is why they call them Indians. I don't think it was a product of Columbus um, accidentally finding something he thought was India. Anyhow, this quote I wanted to read was from a gentleman named Stanford Raffles. And this is what I believe ties this Mexican culture to the Indian culture. And like I said, just to refresh the audience's uh, memory, the reason this matters is because when they found the Mexican culture, they had the same mythoses as the Christians and Jews. Their dialect was basically Hebrew. They called it corrupt Hebrew, but they didn't have the use of letters, which means it couldn't have been brought by Europeans. Because if the Europeans had brought all that symbolism and stuff and those stories and that language with them, they would have brought the use of letters if it was brought by Christians and Jews. So what he wrote was, for ordinary purposes, the Javans use a modification of some of the letters of the alphabet as numerals. But on occasions of importance, it is usual to employ certain signs or symbols in lieu of these ordinary numerals. And this practice appears to be of great antiquity among them. These symbols consist in a certain number of objects, either represented in design or named, each of which is significant of one of the ten numerals. Of the former class are said to be those found in the most ancient buildings and coins, which in that case usually bear no inscription. So um, if you want to chime in and talk about anything, we can. Otherwise, I'll go. I'll continue to uh, some of this stuff, how it plays into um, Ireland and keep going on this subject. But I don't want to I want to make sure I'm not hogging anything, you know. Oh, no, dude. Yeah, I'll just take I want really your stuff and I'll take note of what I want to say and just put it into my okay. uh, outro monologue. But for for this point, what we ought to do is just remind people where they can connect with you and uh, how they can support you. and what where to access the work and we'll finish up the uh, first hour and flow into the second hour to continue where you're at yeah first of all uh if you listen to this on youtube make sure you hit the like button the share it get it out there because i'm censored and chance is censored he can't monetize his platform so please share this video if you see value in it that's the first thing um and it helps with the algorithms and secondly, make sure, uh, you know, the, the content that I provide is incredibly valuable. So make sure you're subscribed to Chance on his Rockfin or his Patreon, however you can get this. It's worth it. Uh, so support Chance so he can continue to do what he's good at and provide a platform for all these different people that will uh, educate you and, and bring stuff to your, uh, your attention. So it'll help you in your own work. So support chance. And if uh, you're interested in what we've been talking about, the book series is called spirit world. That's W H I R L E D. My other series is the tale of Onora O N O R A. I'd really like to get uh, back to doing fantasy work, but you know, due to my own behavior with like online spats, stuff that's like common for us people in this space. But you know, I kind of got, I got canceled back in like 2015 my fantasy series was doing pretty well. And then, um, so what will happen is when you go on the first page of that, you'll see all negative reviews up front that people have voted. Same with like, uh, good reads and all that shit. You'll see it like thousands of fake reviews. But, uh, if you can get past that, it's a really good series. And I'd really like to get back to fiction writing and creating, you know, more red pill, uh, real man's fantasy. 
And so a lot of stuff in Tale of Anora is alchemical and stuff that I don't get into with spirit world wrapped up in some of my favorite stories and adventure. And, uh, what I'd really like to do is get back into making films. And, uh, I stopped all of that to do spirit world because I saw the decay in our fucking country. It was just getting so bad that I had to do something about it. So spirit world is a product of that, of that necessity, but, uh, it's available anywhere online that sells reputable books. Um, and it's available in pretty much all forms. Audiobook, uh, ch- support Chance. Chance uh, is the narrator for book three. And it's a great book. Um, so there should be the links in it in the description. So give that a go. And yeah, hopefully uh, y- it'll help you in your own life. It definitely will. I mean, if you're here and you're interested in the stuff we talk about on a regular basis, then these books are required. <laughs> required reading or listening or both. Like I have all the different versions of it because I reference it in different ways. But yeah, in book four, there will be an audiobook of that. We're underway with the project. I can say with confidence that it will be completed pretty soon. And that's going to be also an excellent resource. So Dylan, thank you so much, man. I'm looking yeah, man. forward to continuing into the second hour. It's my pleasure, brother. phonetic Kabbalah, Diana is Anadi. D, as in D-I, pertains to God, and I is interchangeable with Y. You don't have to go that far back in history to see words spelled with Y, where an I would be in modern English. Anadi is Anadi, as in Anadiomene. What is the omen of Diana? Venus Anadiomene is Lucifer rising from the sea, the pure sea, the Virgin Mare, Mary, or the Virgin of the Sea, Venus, Virgo Marina. Diana is connected to Inanna, which is connected to Doors, Yanua, or the year, Annas, and Janus. It goes like this, Diana, Yanua, Annas, Janus, Janus. The cult of Jew Peter put the I in anus, just like they put the sex in your government, or Congress, and monetary system, commerce. Do you have the courage to walk through the Yanua, or the door, I've opened for you? The Virgin Mother is the Virgin Mary. In French, she is Notre Dame, Our Lady. In Sicilian, she is Matrice. In Latin, she is Mater or matrice. Same with Greek. Matrona 
connects to Madonna, which gives us Madonna in Italian. Morone. Does it take creativity to see that Matrice and Matrice are connected to Matrix, which means womb? Most cathedrals are dedicated to her, or dare I say, Hera. What's in a symbol? What does the alchemist of Notre Dame in Paris wear on his head? What does Lady Liberty wear on her head? What did the sans-culottes wear on their heads during the French Revolution? What does Lady Columbia wear on her head? For all of you who grew up in the 1980s, what did Papa Smurf wear on his head? Is the Papa not the Pope? What does Mithras wear on his head? Does the Phrygian cap not signify an adept, an initiate, or an epopt in the Eleusinian mysteries? The Phrygian cap was called Liberia in Mithraism, symbolizing a freed slave, but became the supreme mark of initiation in Freemasonry. Cover yourself with this cap. It is worth more than a king's crown. What did I teach you about Yak Ob? What do you know about Jacobins? Is the symbol of the fascies they used not the same symbol of fascism that you see on each side of the United States maritime flag in the United States Senate? They gave you Columbia, Isis, Mary, Irene Venus, and Lucifer. The idea that Freemasons are not Luciferian is utter bellshit. Their symbols don't lie. All Abrahamics and cults from which they spawned are indeed Luciferian. Rode was the wife of Helios. Rhodian law is the law of the sea. Lex Mercatoria, maritime admiralty. Rode is Venus, the ocean. Rode is Lucifer. Rode Island is Lucifer Island, the ocean state. This archetype is further passed down as Zeus begets Poseidon, the god of the ocean, and Poseidon begets Despoina. Despoina, a figure in the Eleusinian Mysteries, means the mistress. Is Despoina the mistress or the mystery? Is Despoina despotic? Is despotism brought to whatever nation uses her symbolism? Despoina is the Greek version of Domina, which is the lady or noble lady. Who is our lady? Has she dominated your nation? Artemis is Despoina. The lady, and she is also Diana, who is Samiramis, Rhea, and Cybele, the female counterpart to Janus. Let us not overlook the female version of her, Semele, the mother of Dionysus or Bacchus. Who is Rhea's husband? Cronus, the god of fortresses. Depending on translation, the book of Daniel, chapter 11, verse 38, reads, but in their place he will honor a god of fortresses, a god his fathers did not know, with gold, silver, precious stones, and riches. Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in and making it all the way to the end of the episode. And uh, what you just heard was five minutes of the sample from July's End with Black Swans, Dylan's third book in the Spirit World series. That's the same sample that you'd get if you went and checked it out on Amazon or Audible and wanted to try it out. So I don't think I've ever shared the sample on a podcast before. Figured this is a good time. And honestly, 
is way overdue to have Dylan back on because I finished that particular project way, way long ago, months ago. Uh, I've promoted it where I can, but looking at the sales on the dashboard, definitely way more of you have not checked it out <laughs> than have been listening to Interverse. So, you know what? Do what you want to do, but you're missing out on a lot of amazing gravy, a lot of very helpful syncretism if you don't go and dive into that book. If you did go ahead and buy the book from Dylan in the physical format or the ebook format, that is a good idea too. Honestly, to be completely real with you, probably the most valuable way to consume it would be to actually read it yourself. But consider this, because we're talking about languages and phonetics, looking at it on the page and reading it gives you all the information that you need visually to see how things look the same. But hearing me pronounce it, which that is like a lot of work to pronounce some of those things correctly, will also help you connect the dots. So I would, if it was me, I would actually get both versions. I do have both versions. <laughs> so yeah, uh, check that that out in the show notes. There's always going to be a link to audiobooks that I've completed uh, as I finish more of them. It's a really great, I don't know, side gig, I guess you'd call it. But damn, Dylan was just extremely well prepared today. This was maybe my favorite podcast appearance I've heard from him on any show. Previous ones of my own or Crow or any of those others included. So if you want to hear the whole thing, we got way deep in hour two. Dylan actually came prepared with like eight different subjects that he had notes on ready to go. And we only covered off one of those eight subjects. I think we touched on a few things from the others, but he didn't flesh them out the way he did this topic of languages and letters. I really appreciate it. We had a super good time in even fighting through some technical difficulties made it super worth, uh, you know, the time that it took to deal with that tech stuff. I believe that what we delivered in terms of the conversation, mostly what Dylan delivered made it super worth it. Uh, on my end. Anyway, kind of rambling here. Let me just tell you, if you want to access the second hour, you probably know the drill, but if you're new around here, I do Rockfin or Patreon. Those are your two options for how to get the premium content in the second hour. Uh, it's more like the second hour and 20 minutes, maybe even more than that. I'm not sure. It's big. It's really big because we just needed to keep going, going until he finished all the notes so that we didn't leave it hanging since he's not going to ever present that information anywhere else ever again. And, you know, normally whenever there's, you know, the plus extensions for the show, I'm not usually like trying to paywall content that you couldn't get from that guest some other way, some other place, maybe even for free. It's really more about supporting me. But this time, that's actually an exception. You're not going to hear him talk about these things anywhere else at any other time. I don't think he's even going to include it in his books in quite the same same form, even though this is information uh, inspired from the fifth book that will be coming soon. So yeah, check it out. Rockfin.com slash interverse or patreon.com slash interverse. Of course, there's links in the show notes for both of those. Please check it out. Please support what I'm doing here. I do a lot of free content, only asking for some of it to be paid for. And in this case, I think it's some of the most valuable <laughs> and uh, way worth the $5 or the $10, depending on which one you go with. In the second hour, a few of the things that we got into, just a few. We continued this exploration of Oriental languages and Occidental languages. 
the East and the West. And that was sort of a theme going through the whole thing. We talked about the Irish origins of civilization theory and kind of debunking it, not in a way to like throw shade at researchers who are into that idea, but just pointing out some flaws with that hypothesis. I appreciate the authors and researchers that have that theory and have put it forward because they've gathered a lot of really useful information and they're syncretizing things that do have similarity and should be syncretized. Anyway, we also got <laughs> talked a little bit about the globe, globe ball model, destroyed that. You know, again, here and there, we'd have to do that. We discussed a lot of things about Italy and Sanskrit and ancient Greeks and Sanskrit. Also had an interesting tangent into Sardinia. Also, we touched on the first 300 years of Rome as astrotheology. I uh, took us into a, <laughs> a side road about questioning questioning the existence of these gods and goddesses as egregores in the psychic or astral plane and kind of tried to pull a little bit of more personal i guess beliefs or perspectives out of Dylan cuz Dylan doesn't like to go into that his own subjective thing he tries to keep it very like this I can demonstrate this I can prove this is what's going on in the physical world I appreciate that too but I tried to pull a little bit of <laughs> you know cuz we want to hear what he really thinks I'm sure who doesn't a really fascinating thread on the lotus and the secret letters of leaves. Uh, definitely kind of the origin of green language. And I mean, like literally green language having to do with ciphers that are based on actual physical leaves. I uh, talked about the practical value of syncretism in our lives. Dylan's take on that. And uh, the massive similarity between ancient Welsh and uh, Celtic languages and Hebrew, like ridiculous similarity. And that's just a few of the things, but in general, like the whole, the whole arc, we kept coming back to until Dylan finished it and fleshed it out, the letters and uh, numbers idea <laughs> and alphabets and just looking at that. So, man, it's really good. I hope you guys do get into the second hour. The first hour was incredible. And I'll just say, we're not really here to like crush people's uh, spirituality or the value in some of these ancient mystery school traditions that have passed forward into today in the form of like Christianity, more like to just take the dogma out of it and take the things out of it that make you weak and subservient to middlemen. I love Christian people. I love all people, right? Like I'm not here to rain on your parade or whatever, but whenever you limit yourself to just a particular specific dogma and like, a historical view of these messiahs, messiah ops, I call them. You're playing right into the hands of the mob, like literally the, the deep church, the mob, the mafia. It's always been a parasitic game of getting between you and the creator or between you and nature and putting you in a metaphorical underworld as in like you're under them. <laughs> I just, come on. Like, whether you're Catholic or Protestant in terms of Christian realize that that whole tradition in the form it is now came from the Vatican, but where the Vatican got it came from way older, way earlier stuff going back into India and maybe even into China. And that these are really like offshoots of Buddhism in a way. I know that might be hard to accept, but just as an example, all right, 
there's no goddess in Christianity, right? Then explain why the Vatican, which is in Italy, where the Italians are the descendants of the Etruscans. Tell me why the Etruscans had a goddess of the underworld named Vatica. Okay. And also her name was sometimes like very close to the word vagina. And they built, you know, they built Rome on these hills. Well, this Vatican Hill, (laughs) these hills, you know, you might consider mountains and hills to be like a masculine or something type of symbol, but this is goddess symbolism. The mound, the hill, this is the female, it's the boat. And then the mast or the pole or the obelisk on top of the hill, that's the phallus, that's the male side. So anyway, (laughs) there's, it never ends. I, I won't take up too much time here in the outro. I hope you guys liked it. We'll have Dylan on again sooner than later. There's so much to cover. This study of syncretism never ends. Like we're really at the beginning, but it doesn't take very long into the study to get enough of the keys to be able to see this everywhere and dehex yourself from mysticism. Just the same way that, you know, you probably out there are no longer blindly trusting the science. Well, I'll, don't trust the mystics either. Trust neither of those things. Verify, verify with the nature what you trust. I know that makes sense. Okay, I'm going to play us out in a minute with a good track, but I have to reiterate that we've got a lot of opportunities to work together, you and me, one-on-one. I'd love to do some tuning with my big tuning fork and my littler tuning forks. Incredible process that... My client just yesterday said, worth every penny, okay? <laughs> it's it's fun, too. Like, we have a lot of fun with it. Check out my website, interversepodcast.com slash sound dash healing. If you want more information about getting tuned up, getting your auric field, your energy, your bioelectricity and balance, it's amazing. Uh, I really love the modality. Or do some cards with me. We can do one-on-one oracle card tarot and eaching sessions. You know, that's my favorite way to provide counseling. If anybody does want counseling from me on some level. So I'm going to play this out with a track by my buddy, Dean, AKA lucid, a newer song by him called Sultan. And I thought that was appropriate, especially because once you get the whole L to R switch in language, you realize Sultan, the soul is like, sir. So sir is the God or the sun or the rock. And then tan Tan etymology, etymology like uh, connects to serpents, right? As does sir, obviously. So Sultan is like the the snake god. <laughs> it is a name to demonstrate that whoever is granted the title Sultan is like, you know, a servant of the rock, the Petra, the father, or is the father, the father serpent, the father son, uh, you know, the universal serpent that is making that analemma figure eight in the sky, Lord eight Hermes, Mercury, the sun. Yeah. So I hope you guys enjoy that track. Check the show notes for links to everything. Very excited to put this one out. Thanks for tuning in. Looking forward to more. Much love everybody. Bye-bye.
Tell them 